Jonathan Rose is professor of history at Drew University. He was the founding president of the Society of the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, and is co-editor of the journal Book History. His publications include The Intellectual Life of the British Working Class, 2001, The Holocaust and the Book, Destruction and Preservation, 2001, and The British Literary Publishing Houses, 1820 to 1926, published in 1991. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much, Nigel. We're here to talk about J.M. Dent. First, a bit about the man, and then about his company. Well, he, he rose from the working classes. He started out as a bookbinder. He was self-educated. He arose out of a whole tradition of what was called mutual improvement, which was very common amongst the Victorian working classes. Moved from bookbinding to publishing. How did he do that? Well, the, the two businesses are related, so that, uh, it, it was not difficult to move from one to the other and, and became ultimately a mass market publisher. Noted, however, for mass marketing fine books. We mentioned, for example, his edition of the, uh, the Mort d'Arthur uh, by Aubrey Beardsley. He did the Temple Shakespeare, which was a very fine edition of, of the plays for a shilling each. They're very nicely produced. And of course, he's best known for Everyman's Library, which he projected as a series of 1,000 of the greatest books ever written in the world. And if you look at the early Everyman Library edition, which you can pick up at any used bookstore. This uh, would have started in 1906. 1906, exactly. Yeah. They sold for one shilling, very, very in inexpensive. But they were produced with floral designs very much reminiscent of William Morris. They had gold stamped, a, a sinuous kind of a, uh, Art Nouveau decorations on, on the spine. And I think what Dent's achievement was to take some of Morris's aestheticism, which, let's face it, for the Kelmscott Press, was awfully pricey and appealed to a very elite audience, and then made it accessible to everybody. And I think his whole mission in life was to take the arts, the book arts, the literary arts, and, and make them available to the masses, and succeeded greatly, I think. And great content, too, the content that he thought was the best. Yes, and, and you know, today, maybe some of his choices would seem a little bit old-fashioned. And, of course, he did generally pick out-of-copyright books. But he also did translations, too, didn't he? Yes, certainly, in some cases. I mean, everything from the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey to the Koran mm -hmm. was, in, was, in, was in every man's library. Sure, certainly. Why do you think he is so successful and the every man's library is the most successful series that's mm -hmm. ever been produced because he certainly wasn't the first one to do it. No, uh, no. Walter uh, Scott, I mean, for example. The, the, the Walter Scott series, uh, John Bell's very early series, we have found over a hundred editions of the cheap classics going back to the 19th century. This was not itself a new idea. What was unprecedented was, first of all, the scale. It was planned with Ernest Rees, the editor. They really thought very seriously about you know, what the canon of great books should be. I know that's a dirty word nowadays. Uh, you can get court-martialed from some English departments for, for using it. Mm -hmm. But they really felt that, yes, there are certain books that everybody ought to be familiar with. And to make them accessible, as you say. And, and, and make them accessible, mm -hmm. exactly. And they, uh, they really tried to get some pretty broad coverage of at least Western literature, but also some Eastern literature as well, such as the Koran, such as the Bhagavad Gita. That was all in there. So it, I think it, in terms of coverage, 
it was not exceeded until you got Penguin Books, of course, later on in, yeah. the, uh, in the 20th century. Very much the same idea, though, wasn't it? It's mm-hmm. to, to, to get good literature into the hands of, in, the, in that case, for less than the price of a cigarette case, I think. Sixpence, which is yeah. half the price of every man's yeah. library. And uh, certainly that was a tremendous marketing success, sold in Woolworths, among other places. Why then, again, was Dent and the Everyman's Library so successful? You've mentioned the range of titles. Yes. Okay. A number of things converged in the early 20th century. First of all, you'd finally achieved universal literacy. Everybody at least went to primary school. Now, it's Mm -hmm. true, the working classes usually could not go much beyond that. But that left a large number of, you know, uh, working class people who hungered for further knowledge, further education, so you educate yourself. Because they couldn't have, they wouldn't have been accepted into university. Well, exactly. Or, yeah. or even uh, opportunities for secondary education yeah. were extremely limited. You did not yet have competition from the radio, the cinema, television, needless to say the internet. Working hours were finally beginning to decline as unions became stronger. More leisure time, mm-hmm. and you know, although uh, I wouldn't exactly say affluence for working classes, but at least somewhat more disposable income. So they had both the time and the inclination and the money to afford this, uh, this series, yes. And it was not just the working classes. Uh, students made use of them. I certainly looked at the uh, the Workers' Educational Association, which was founded in 1903, to bring, again, education to, to the uh, higher education of the masses. And what kind of books did the professors assign? Well, they assigned every man's library books because they were so inexpensive. Right. And the, there were reliable texts that they could, uh, they could deal with, yes. They, did they also not have interesting new introductions? Yeah, they had introductions by, by G.K. Chesterton. He did a few of them. They did recruit some very eminent literary people to write up the introductions for this, yes. Mm. So that might have been another selling point. Yes. Yeah. So the books themselves, uh, I know you've mentioned that you're not a a collector per Mm -hmm. se, but their presentation may have exceeded uh, what came prior to that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think in terms of just sheer handsomeness, they were far ahead of what, what had gone before. Is that because there was a, the presence of a new kind of technology that enabled him to make better books at less cost? Or? I think he was, a, he was able to achieve economies of scale, which meant that he could spend something on the aesthetics of the book. You know, you had before him W.T. Stead's Penny Poets, which, as the name implies, were extremely cheap, yes, but they're also kind of flimsy, uh, and you got what you paid for. And these books were supposed to last. Okay. Was he involved in the actual design, or did he have... No, he, had, he, had, he, he hired designers, and some of them were... Uh, Eric Ravelis, I'm not quite sure who, who, who did that, but uh, he did employ... You know, was Eric Gill involved? Perhaps. Maybe not, the I new Temple I don't think he was involved in every man's life, right? No. wrong about that. So he started off as a bookbinder, yeah. so obviously he had an appreciation for the construction of... Yes. A good construction of, of books. Mm-hmm. He was also a big fan of Shakespeare. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose, again, it was his just his motivation to bring what he thought was great to the masses. Yeah, I believe he worked for, uh, well, for Toynbee Hall, which was the, the settlement house in East End. And there it was a Shakespeare class, and one problem was that they would do a play and everybody would bring in a different edition. Of course, the two of them would be... 
quite the same. And, and yeah, and it, you know how frustrating that is when you're... Well, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think he felt the need for some kind of uniform edition. But I think it was Israel Galenz who edited that. Father of the famous publisher. Victor Glantz, yes. Yeah. He was also very interested in music, Dent, apparently. His father sold... Ah, yes. I believe you're right. I don't know that, that much about that aspect of yeah. his life, I confess. So, putting on a hat that you're not used to putting on, mm -hmm. uh, if you were interested in acquiring some of the output of, of mm -hmm. Dent, what would you go after and why? Well, I would try as, as far as possible to go after the pre-World War One edition, the very first batch that he put out, because when the war came, yeah, everything became more expensive, they could no longer afford such fine filigreed artwork on the, on, on the covers, and there had to be some sacrifices of quality. So, paper, were there paper rations as well in the first uh, one? They, they, I think the, uh, yeah, the quality of paper to some extent deteriorated. After the war it came back, but still, you know, there was inflation, costs were higher, and they simply, again, couldn't afford the same level of quality. So it's those pre-war editions which are really beautiful. They had jackets too, so it's rare. Yes, to they find did. Them. They did, and they were color coded. So you had one color for history, one color for biography, one color for science, one color for poetry, and so on. Going back to the very beginning, what kind of books did he put out to, to start with before he got into series? The firm started more with series of classics, one way or another. Okay. They later branched out into a general trade publisher of contemporary books became rather important in that way. Um, and what's interesting is, of course, they, they published some what we call proletarian literature and literature by people of, of rather, you know, of obscure origins, including, most people don't know this, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, the African-American writer. Mm -hmm. The Dent Firm was her English publisher. Now, Dent himself had died at that point, but his sons had taken over the business. And I think, again, that reflected the same sense of mission as every man's life, right? We're not only going to publish books for the disenfranchised readers. We're going to publish books by disenfranchised writers. So I think that it was a very democratic approach to literature and what way ahead of its time. Very much this pulling for the underdog. Yeah, exactly. He also had a very hard go of it to start with, as mm -hmm. as I recall. He, he had to borrow quite a bit of money to get the thing started. Uh, they had to build a whole new printing plant in Letchworth Garden City. There was a fire, wasn't there, at one point? there was. Well, it was a success, but the point is, it was such a huge investment that the cash flow became a problem for a time, yes. But in the long run, the sales exceeded expectations. Particularly for Everyman. Yes. So prior to the Everyman, there was the Temple Classics and the Temple Shakespeare? Yes. Do we have a rough idea of when he started off? That would have uh, been... Late 1880s, when okay. he started doing book publishing. 1888, I think, or 89, yeah. And he would have started off reprinting material that was out of copyright yes. primarily. His Shakespeare, Temple Shakespeare, again, same sort of characteristics, beautifully designed. In, in a simple way. Without charging the amount. That he exactly. Used. So we move then through to the early Everyman series then, 1906. It goes through to the 1970s, doesn't it? It does. Now it's still, uh, it, was, it was taken over by another sure. firm more recently. It's still going. Very different kind of design and very different kind of mission. But basically it kept going as long as the firm did. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, certainly for the academic market, it was, uh, I, I still have Everyman editions of Foissart, for example, that I got picked up in college back in the 1970s. Because, yes, they were cheap and they, and all, they had all the classics there and uh, they were great for students. 
obviously a, a key uh, element of the success then was first of all the fact that there was a population in England that yeah. um, and the United States they were distributed over here by the Dutton firm E.P. Dutton so there was that, that part of society that wasn't going to continue their education but wanted to learn and then I suppose post that there would have been particularly in the United States lots of students yes and professors that yes. would have grown up with it I suppose as well right and just assigned it anything uh, then other than the series that stands out they published Dylan Thomas because that came much later long after J.M. Dent died, but uh, but the firm, you know, Richard Church, who was a poet in his own right, was their poetry editor. And he and raved about Dylan Thomas. He did. Now, of course, Dylan Thomas said some very nasty things about him. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's true, Richard Church had rather, should we say, middle-brow taste in poetry. It's not, not something that would appeal to the Beat Generation, for example. But uh, he recognized, you know, Dylan's talent and, and cultivated it, yes. Certainly as the firm evolved they got more and more into publishing contemporary literature yes well his Funny. sons his sons took over as i say that later on and his nephew and so on and, and then again church was of course i think very important and if you want to understand 20th century poetry he's a gatekeeper and a uh, and a, a midwife so to speak i mean the very fact that he made poetry pay says something about both the dent firm and also of course about the the reading public at the time i know Gallant's particularly Took on fascism and uh, yeah, and Hitler in in the thirties. Yeah, is this something that you saw in Dent? Not or? not quite in the same way. Uh, I think in many ways, of course, Galanz and even Penguin were were more political than the Dent firm. I think while again they had a, a, a very democratic approach to literature. Uh, I think they tended to view it as something apart from politics. Das Kapital did eventually make it into the Everman's library. I think Dent himself was opposed to it. But once he died, then his sons brought it into the, into the series. His own politics, I think, were, were very liberal, but not socialistic. He has a very interesting uh, look. He's got a... Yes. A long beard, and I don't know, would that have stood out? Would his appearance have been a, a bit eccentric at the time? Or? It was probably even before the war when he was a little bit old-fashioned, maybe. Uh, he did have the look of a Victorian sage. That was perhaps something that the Dent firm was never able to shake. It was definitely not an avant-garde house. Uh, it was very focused on the past, one of their... One of their Ventures, which was not terribly successful, they actually published a magazine, Every Man's Magazine. The idea it was a, it was a weekly magazine devoted to the classics. Well, when you think about it, does this make any sense at all? I mean, we're talking about timeless literature. It's not like uh, the uh, New York Review of Books or or the TLS, which reviews contemporary books. That of course you have to come out every week or every yeah, other bringing week. bringing new stuff to people. Right, right. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do with it with a, <laughs> a, a a weekly magazine that's been devoted books for hundreds of years? Oh, and it started actually started out with a very strong circulation, but then petered out pretty quickly. Uh, pretty pretty quickly. They did have some reviews of contemporary books, but they were not hep to the really modern currents in literature. So that has given a somewhat musty odor to the whole Dent enterprise. But as we see with the case of Dylan Thomas, they were not entirely uh, insensitive to. You know the experimental in art, or, or for that matter, uh, Aubrey Beardsley. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that, that really does stand out because yeah. uh, Beardsley was considered to be very uh, risque yes. and uh, quite the opposite of the staid. Dent was Catholic, I think, was he? Or? Not sure, actually. But certainly mm-hmm. not in line with, with what you've just discussed. Mm-hmm. He could be oddly puritanical. Some of the 18th century novelists, English novelists, which, let's face it, were a bit raunchy, he held off, including in the series. And again, they had to, his sons had to wait for him to die, and then they brought them, brought them in. Okay. He was a Victorian. That's part of it. But, but he's, the, he's the one that found Beersley, though, no? Yeah. But I think we look, in hindsight, we see Beersley as a decadent. But to Dent, he just seemed to be an esthete. And this was high art. So yeah. certainly, why not employ yeah. him? Someone with a great deal of talent who right. was, was striking yes. in his style. Are there any stories within the firm that stand out for you, that just in terms of successes or failures? <laughs> or a, well, they, apparently he always pronounced literature, literature. They, of course, always poked fun at him for this. And yes, he was a man of very limited formal education who took this very worshipful attitude toward literature. That's not considered, well, it wasn't considered terribly hip even back in the 1920s, let alone today. But he wasn't putting on airs, though, was he? I wouldn't say putting on, putting on airs. No, I, I, amongst that generation, there was this very worshipful attitude toward the great books. It was post-Darwin. I mean, you could no longer invest that much belief in the, the good book. And so you transferred that sense of reverence to the great books. And, of course, both the Bible and the Origin of Species are in every man's library. They both made it in. And the idea was, you read all, all of it. That was part should be part of your intellectual equipment, which, of course, is a far cry from American society today, where uh, half the population reads the Bible and not Darwin, the other half reads Darwin and not the Bible. So, you know, we're, we're, we're polarized in a way that English society was not polarized in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. It's yeah, it's all encompassing. Uh, yeah, something. It was, it was very, 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 a very, I mean, Catholic with a small C. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. very, very uh, all embracing. You mentioned Dutton in the yeah. United States. Do you know much about Dutton? Was Dutton Canadian, or did he have a? Canadian I actually, actually, I actually know very little about that. But but yeah. it was certainly an American firm for scholars. I've I've been to the archives, and there is a ledger book which tells you exactly how many copies each Everyman's Library volume sold in each year both in the UK, which of course was Dent, and in the US, which was Dutton. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to measure the relative popularity of different classics, it's a gold mine. I've always thought it should be put online somehow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Is that in uh, Chapel Hill? It is in Chapel Hill, yes. They've got the archives down there. And was there a good relationship between the two? I, I wasn't aware of any, any friction. Uh, I think it was a fairly passive relationship. I mean, simply... It was Dent who was the Dent firm that was obviously publishing the books, and Dutton was simply the distributor yeah. in the U.S. I don't think they played a terribly active editorial role. They were just happy to accept whatever Dent published, and they had their title page. Same, put on. It was, it's just another market for the, for the same product. What happened? Is it, did it get swallowed up like so many other firms? Yeah, now it was absorbed by was it Weidenfeld and Nicholson? Ultimately, yes. It was the whole the whole Dent firm was. I'm speaking with Jonathan Rose, book historian. To use a, a modern term, 
It's quite clear that one of the strengths of the company must have been the marketing. Yes. To, again, to use this modern term, branding, that everyman brand. Do you have any sense of, of what they did to get their message out to the mass? They, they, they certainly advertised. My sense is that the Everyman series was a success from the starting gun. In fact, they, they, they were overwhelmed by the number of orders, and they simply did not have a, the, you know, the, the printing plant or the, uh, the distribution system often to keep up. I read that that he was so overwhelmed at, at one point that he, you know he was concerned because he couldn't put any more out yes. because he had to keep reprinting the first ones that he put right. out. Right. Yes. It, but it was not so much a matter of publicity on 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 the firm's part. It was that there there was so much attention paid in the press, newspapers, magazines to literature at the time. You had several weekly reviews. You had monthly magazines like The Bookman. Every newspaper had a literary section and they covered new books, they covered old books, they had they had profiles of authors and so on. And this is not just the, the, the London papers, little provincial papers would do this. So whenever a venture like this took off, it would just get publicized everywhere yeah. for free. It's just like there's no competition. There was no competition from other sources of media. True, There's certainly yes. other other publishers out yes. there trying similar things, but mm -hmm. but again, they just didn't. They don't stick in the memory or the historical mm -hmm. presence of this. Every man's library yeah. is so huge it obliterates everything. Were there other series that were going on at the time that? Oh yeah, oh yes, and and it'd been going on for a century or more. The earlier series again were not as attractive, and also they were very miscellaneous collections of out-of-copyright literature in the sense that this was planned out by an editor who said, look, we've got to cover all the, uh, the national literature, we've got to cover all historical periods. They, it was like a plan that the reader, yes. could, the, the reader could buy into. Right, exactly. And by the way, oh, they, they, they gave a lot of coverage to American literature at a time when there was virtually no interest in academic circles in Britain. Cambridge University never did not grant a PhD in any aspect of American literature until the 1960s. F. R. Leavis, the great critic at Cambridge, one of his colleagues suggested that maybe they might actually include this fellow William Faulkner in the in the curriculum. Oh no, no, he said that the Americans just just toss him in to try to prove they can produce great writers, you know. But Dent's series yes. included Moby Dick at a time when Melville was relatively little known, even in the yeah. United States. And I think that was, in fact, he helped spur the revival of interest in Melville. Isn't, that, isn't that ironic, that, too? Yeah. It takes a British yeah. publisher to revive the reputation right. of it. And there was the Federalist Papers, and there was the uh, speeches of Abraham Lincoln. So all of that, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, and all of that went into the, into the series, yes. Again, I suppose, partly because it's their canon, yeah, but partly, I'm sure, to appeal to an American audience. I'm I'm sure they had the Dutton market in mind when they did that. Yes, I would say just looking at the whole history of publishing, they were concerned about literature. They were concerned about literary art. They were certainly also concerned about the bottom line, and that has been true of every great writer, since, literally since Shakespeare. Compared to some of the other publishers at the time. How big were they? Certainly by the 1920s, they were one of the top, the biggest publishing mm -hmm. firms. So yes. they would compete with Murray and... And Macmillan, and, and yes, and uh, Blackwoods, yes. 
Certainly. Your study of, of Dent, uh, and you've studied obviously all sorts of publishing firms. Mm-hmm. What, what impression are you left with? What lesson does he leave the scholar, the book yeah. scholar? He was a product of his times, which is, say, late Victorian Edwardian. He, he achieved great success at a moment when, again, there was this huge market for the cheap classics. To some extent, the firm did not adapt, I think, to, to changing times. It always had that rather old-fashioned air about it, which may explain, of course, why it was ultimately swallowed up. Um, but still, a pretty good run of almost 100 years. Well, it's a good point, yes, yes. But to keep going, you have to have a list of new Keep refreshing it. and Once a firm starts to rely on its backlist, it's the beginning of the end. They can coast for a time because, you know, all you have to do is keep reprinting the books you've published before and actually it can be quite profitable. But eventually people are going to lose interest in that and then you will simply not have the revenue stream. It's almost as if they, well, you've mentioned they became textbooks. Yes. So a big part of their sales would have come from the educational sector. Yes. And no doubt they profited from the expansion of higher education after the Second World War. So that that would have been another boost that would have kept them going for the for the time that it's yes. So a bit stodgy, but very successful in their formula. That's a good way of summing them up. Yes. What about dust jackets and things like that? Was there are there any particular designers that are associated with the firm? It changed over time. Names don't immediately come to mind. I mean, sales that were in the millions, if you talk about the whole series, tens of millions over time, that's absolutely, it's, it's, it's stupendous. And it was, a, it was a privately held company throughout the Fa- whole fa- family. family. I know that a couple of his sons died in the war. Yes. One of the book, first books he published after the war was Henri Barbus' Le Feu, or uh, it, was, it was translated as Under Fire, which is, of course, this very disturbing uh, novel of World War I trench warfare, in a way anticipating uh, all quite on the Western Front, but written, in this case, from the French point of view. So I think that Dent was, if not, not a pacifist, perhaps, but certainly anti-war. His wife died quite young as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So the man, uh, obviously, had all sorts of tragedy mm-hmm. to deal with, and yet... Mm-hmm. Uh, Persevered. Yes, and not uncommon in that in that, that generation. Yes, disease was one cause, and obviously, and the war touched almost every family. D- did he suddenly become interested in other fields because of changes in his life? I don't think he evolved a lot. I think his tastes were sort of fixed in the eighteen eighties and didn't change a, a great deal. Although, again, his picking the great canon that he picked, it doesn't really have to evolve, does it? Exactly. I know at one point he said something like, if you have the, the King James Bible and the works of Shakespeare, you've got a pretty good handle on human yeah, nature, yeah. how to live. Right. In effect, you think he was trying to educate the working classes? Well, oh, absolutely. Was his mission? And, and yes, there was a sense of mission about it. And in a more cynical age, that didn't go over terribly well, but when it, when it began, uh, there was a real sense of um, enthusiasm among the public for that kind of thing, yes. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.
I've been speaking with Jonathan Rose, who is a book historian who teaches at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Thanks again. Thank you.